Kensington Road, Kensington Road, street where the bust of Napoleon sold. One of the six, the iconoclast road, onto the cobbles of Kensington Road. You won't find the pearl on the Kensington Road. <laughs> you did the song, you do the intro. Oh, right, fuck. Uh, hi, welcome back to A Study in Granada, a sporadic Sherlock Holmes Rewatch podcast where we are going through the ITV Sherlock Holmes series uh, from the 1980s starring Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick. Uh, this week we're talking about The Six Napoleons. Hello, I'm also here. Uh, oh, <laughs> sorry, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we haven't done this in a while. <laughs> we have not done this in a while. Um, I'm Jack Snefflin and I'm joined by my co-host, uh, a... A uh, friend, but not expert of the sh- of fan- no. Um, <laughs> Mike Knoll knows more. Mike Knoll knows more Sherlock than I do. I'm a fan, but not expert. Hello, irregulars. Uh, I have to apologize first and foremost. I did refer to our fans as frequels, which are what we call the fans of my other podcasts. Last time, so apologies up front. I know most of you probably don't listen to my dumb movie podcast, so I apologize for lumping you in with. My true fans. <laughs> that apology got aggressive. Although you should go listen to, if nothing else, uh, Come Monday, which is currently my favorite of the most recent episodes. It's, uh, what if Yesterday had a sequel, and it was, like, heart-wrenching. And Jimmy Buffett. And Jimmy Buffett. Well, yeah, we are not yeah. here to talk about Jimmy Buffett this week. We're here to talk about Napoleon, in fact. Sherlock Holmes with the six Jimmy Buffetts. Oh, God. Borsha Salt Shaker. God. So, uh, what the fuck happened in this episode? Well, uh, so this one was... Wow, we are really rusty at this. Uh, <laughs> this week, we're, we watched The Six Napoleons, uh, the uh, a sort of a quintessential Sherlock Holmes story, I think. One of the ones that if you were sat Holmes fans down and asked them to make a list of, like, just off the top of their head, as many Sherlock Holmes mysteries as they could, I think Six Napoleons is right up there. It's got a very... One, a strange title, because usually it's like The Adventure Of, or things like that. And I believe this one is just The Six Napoleons. I'm going to check it, because every other time I have made a bold declarative statement like that, I have been absolutely incorrect. I was incorrect. This one is also The Adventure of the Six Napoleons. Uh, I think it's mostly that the Granada series dropped the adventure from the beginning of most of the episodes. (laughs) So here, in fact, we have the Six Napoleons. Uh, an interesting problem where Sherlock Holmes is put on the case mm-hmm. of a... Oh, let's see if I can quote Watson directly. A Napoleon-hating lunatic, uh, I believe. There's that. He also what we described as a promiscuous iconoclast, which... Also the name of your first memoir. There's your new OnlyFans handle. Well, let's go ahead and begin. Let's begin by beginning. <laughs> One evening, Lestrade reports to Holmes and Watson a string of odd offenses. A burglar broke into Morse Hudson's shop, then into Dr. Barnicott, both surgery and house, only to break their busts of Napoleon. The morning after, Lestrade invites Holmes to meet him at journalist Horace Harker's house. Someone has stolen and smashed his bust of Napoleon and slit the throat of an unknown person on his doorstep. In the photograph found in the murdered man's pocket morse hudson recognizes beppo an italian who worked at gelder's where his special batch of six busts came from four of them have already been smashed by the mysterious vandal 
This is, they are not wasting any time. They are not. They did also cut out the, what, four or five minutes of only Italian uh, dialogue of a man yelling at Marina Sirtis for about four minutes in Italian and then a very frantic knife fight outside of Gelder's. Mm-hmm. A lot of extras, a lot of people just running around. So, like, good on them from, like, making the world feel full. Uh, but also, I don't speak Italian, so this is all very lost on me. Uh, I got that emotions were happening, but there wasn't quite enough to, like, get a strict sense of the, the particulars. And there were, were subtitles, so nothing was spoiled. We talked about this uh, while watching the episode about... It was pretty clear that they were shouting the plot of the episode in Italian. And I feel like if they had put subtitles, it would have pretty much just, like... There wouldn't have been a mystery. But also, like, if the way you make an episode 50 minutes is... An extended scene of, one, a man watching a woman give herself a sponge bath through a window. And then people yelling at each other in Italian. That's a bad way to do it. More of the, the sponge bath. Uh, very good for sponges. Wait, what? Yeah, what you said. The thing you said, <laughs> definitely. Uh, I think it might have worked a lot better if we were seeing more of this Italian drama play out, like, parallel with the adventure. So, that, like, mm-hmm. these kind of plots converge, but... That doesn't really happen. We do get a bit where Marina Service hires an assassin, mm-hmm. or her dad does, or whatever, by putting a by tearing a picture in half, putting a knife on it, moving it towards a guy, and muttering "assassino," <laughs> just just to let us know <laughs> if we had not guessed that putting a, putting a knife on a picture and sliding it towards someone means kill this man. My favorite part of that scene, though, was he does this. He like tears. He puts a ruler down on a photo of Marina Service and the guy, tears it in half along the ruler. Then puts a very nice knife on top of the picture of the man, slides it across. This whole scene takes like two, three minutes. The guy takes the knife, kisses the ring of the the head, because this is the mafia, as Lestrade tells us. I refer, of course, to the mafia. Um, kisses the ring. And then as he straightens up, the camera pans up and zooms in on her face so she can go, Assassino. Like... It does. It's not that she says it as it's happening. She waits until the scene is over to then let anybody who didn't pick up on what's happening know this man is an assassin. It's like when uh, the guy who was facing my ceiling fan left. Uh, you know, he he walked out. I closed the door. I saw him recede, and then I declared electrician. The parallel is exact. Is there anything that we want to talk about here from the loud Italian fight to uh, we'll say up until the. Events at Horace Harker's house. The the journalist who, um, they go and meet. Who like the the where uh, the man's throat, Pietro Venucci's throat, was slit on his doorstep. Is there anything that you want to talk about specifically in that section? I don't have anything super major. Like it, it's kind of all through the episode. But there, this is a very no chill episode. No one is um, no one is relaxed. This whole yeah, thing. it is a very for an episode in which the plot seems to be. Somebody's just, like, breaking up some busts of Napoleon. Everybody's, like, frantic to stop that guy that's just breaking some plaster casts of Napoleon. Mm-hmm. We also spent a long time with uh, the journalist, who I think he must be kind of more of a, a comical character mm-hmm. in the in the story. He's kind of got this, like, wow, every time I'm there where something exciting happens, I'm too flustered to write anything. What shall I do? But here he's kind of just very flat it doesn't really doesn't really come off i I think the actor didn't really have the right direction he seemed less flustered and more just like cantankerous 
mm-hmm. which I think if he had been much more flustered and kind of flapping around the apartment or his house, that would have done more for that part to make it like maybe the the comedic relief it's supposed to be, maybe. I mean, as it is, the comedic relief is Watson and Lestrade being very grumpy and tired at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that. Yeah, I think that character needs to be like more flustered, more like... Um, mm-hmm. more bu- more buffoonish. Spoilers, regulars. This is we're not going to have a lot to say about this episode. It's very long. It's a fun story, but it is a pretty long, meandering episode. Do you work with Mike? I'm going to go ahead and go back. Let's just run through the full synopsis, and then we can kind of mm-hmm. um, float our way through conversation. For sure. Holmes finally succeeds in convincing the reluctant shopkeeper to tell him who bought the two remaining ones. The manager of the casting factory in turn remembers Beppo, who was sentenced to one year imprisonment for having wounded a fellow countryman the year before. Holmes persuades Lestrade, who has identified the murdered man, Pietro Venucci, to accompany him to Chiswick. Sorry, Chiswick. Chris Wick. Chiswick. At Mr. Brown's place, Holmes, Watson, and Lestrade, waiting in ambush, see Beppo break into Brown's house, come out with his bust of Napoleon, and shatter it to pieces. Lestrade's constables cart off the burglar, but there is nothing of interest to be found in the bust. The day after, Mr. Sandiford arrives at Baker Street with the sixth Napoleon, which Holmes has bought from him. Sandiford gone, Holmes breaks the bust and finds among its fragments the famous black pearl of the Borgias, stolen from the Prince of Colonia. Colonia, yeah. Lucrezia Venucci, who was the princess's maid, was supposed to steal the pearl and her lover, Beppo, to hand it over to Pietro Venucci, but Beppo thought it better to steal the pearl for his own benefit. Pietro came at Gelder's and challenged Beppo to single combat. Mortal combat! Uh, but received a knife wound. Pursued by the police, Beppo noticed the plaster of the busts ordered by Morse Hudson was still soft and hid the pearl in one of the six casts. Once released from the prison, Beppo hunted desperately for the pearl and slit the throat of Pietro, who was set on killing him to avenge the betrayed Venucci family. It is very funny to me that he managed to kill the assassin sent after him. Like, hire better assassins. Mm-hmm. You're the mafia. You should. This is a thing you should have unlocked. Yeah. Also, that it, they were using daggers or knives. Like, guns exist. I get it for you know noise or whatever. But like at this point, he already beat that guy in a knife fight a year ago. Like, why? Why are you sending him back out with just a nicer knife? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that. Here's a theory. This is not backed by anything in the episode itself, but mm-hmm. we know that Moriarty was responsible for mm-hmm. half that is evil and all that is criminal, and that Sherlock Holmes spent like years cleaning up his network of spies and informants and killers. It could be that there are just not a lot of good criminals left in England. But Sherlock Holmes has gotten rid of a lot of them. <laughs> There's only like the C-list assassins available at this point. I really thought you were going to say that there were just no more guns left in Britain. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes personally rounded up every firearm in the country of England and disposed of it. I'm into that. Most can imagine doing it all in like one day, running around very fast like the Flash. I love the idea that he has like a Santa sack and you just see like shotguns, rifles, like... <laughs> or he's like just pocketing people's pistols. God. Well, speaking of pistols, you have a note here that just says apes that you want to talk about. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's more a thing in the story, but it comes up once or twice in the episode as well that... Um, uh, Beppo, who is Italian, is referred to like with ape descriptors, like it was, you know, like the mm-hmm. the grace of an ape. Um, he's described as having simian features, mm-hmm. and it's not great. TM, it's kind of just like a like ah, Italians, they're monkey like. They're basically they're basically non whites. Um, it's not not ideal. 
this is my surprised face that coming off of the man with the twisted lip, we had some uh, troublesome <laughs> descriptions and portrayals. Yeah. Like, it's not much. It's just, it felt remiss to not bring it up. We mentioned comedy relief. There's a very funny bit where uh, Holmes like is taking the picture that they got off uh, the assassin's body, and Lestrade is like, "Wait, that might be a vital clue." And Holmes is like, "Yeah, that's why I'm taking it." It's very funny to me. Uh, and also, just like a very kind of quintessential mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes of like, "Yes, if it wasn't important, I wouldn't want it." <laughs> Lestrade thought that he was in charge for once. For some reason, let's go ahead and talk about this. Was something that I brought up, and I intended to look into it and then you looked into it for me i'm curious this episode or rather the story that was published was published in 1905 which is some roughly 100 years after the napoleonic wars and famously where napoleon was defeated by england and i was curious why are there so many busts of napoleon and in the story holmes kind of mentioned something as well like hundreds of busts of napoleon in england or whatever um or maybe even just in this shop uh but you looked into why there would be so many busts of Napoleon at this time. Okay. So, uh, Ashley is also uh, someone I know who knows Napoleon stuff. And <laughs> the way it was described is that Napoleon was kind of a um, a great adversary, as it were. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it is akin to, roughly, um, like if you were a hunter and you had like a, a particularly big trophy you, you put like above your mantelpiece like hey look at this tiger that i, I killed. see um you know this is a uh that's a overly that's a kind of a reduction mm-hmm. but that is essentially a way of talking about napoleon being this like uh like a worthy opponent to england um gotcha and so that's a big part of he was the moriarty of war y- yes <laughs> exactly and also, I think it kind of works really well for this story to be done here because, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes has defeated Moriarty at this point. He has defeated the Napoleon of crime, but the kind of specter of of that kind of hangs over the story. That's because one of the bus is haunted by Moriarty's but ghost. Only one. Yeah, just one. And it's not the one you'd expect. <laughs> I think it also helps me understand why moriarty was such a big deal because he's kind of seen as this honorable opponent in the way that napoleon was Mm -hmm. um which Mm -hmm. i get it makes sense also ties into a thing that uh the museum creator i think says the guy who's talking about the red republicans so there's a bit uh the summary kind of breezes through it because most just say like uh going to a place talking to a guy Mm -hmm. learning a thing scene doesn't really matter where this guy is talking about how oh they're smashing all these busts red republicans i tell you um looking to that uh there was at this time and honestly since like the 1700s this debate between uh the monarchists and the republicans in england uh the the red republicans are basically people who think that you know maybe having the monarchy is bad um so uh so the museum creator is apparently very opposed to that uh, because he is, and I'm so glad I get to actually use the word in context, an anti-disestablishmentarian. Sorry, he is a proponent of, and I get to say this in context for once, an anti-disestablishmentarianism. Um, which uh, basically was this view that no, we shouldn't uh, get rid of the monarchy. It is an important part of England. We should keep having that be a thing. Um, yeah. The we'll come back to this man because I feel very confident saying he's going to win Musk Clash. Um, 
just the most fantastic oh, absolutely. facial hair. Um, I'm going to say so far, maybe the only man who could stand up to the king of uh, uh, Bohemia. Mm-hmm. Agreed. He's also, he is as comical and buffoonish as the newspaper reporter should yes. have been. Maybe that's why they made Harker less buffoonish, is like having two of them in one episode was slightly more than that they were wanting to do, perhaps. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, because the story, uh, as written, um, you know, in the 1900s was, uh, seemed to lean pretty hard on the, like, Napoleon-worthy adversary thing, but the guy who's espousing this very, like, pro-Napoleonic thing seemed, uh, way more buffoonish in this episode made 100 years later. Well, 50, I don't know, many years. In the future, that is now the past, yeah, the Napoleonic Wars, in my limited research I tried to put together before you told me you had done this, uh, is that the Napoleonic Wars were in like the very early 1800s. Uh, and if this was 1905, it would have been 190, 90 to 100 years after. Yeah, and the actually comes out like basically almost 200 years after the Napoleonic Wars. Um, On the anniversary of the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> the Napoleonic Wars lasted one day because they're an Avengers movie. So I think the episode is coming down more harshly against Napoleon than the uh, than Conan Doyle was, which I'm glad about. Uh, broadly not a fan mm-hmm. of empires or uh, conquerors, so I'm glad the episode isn't either. I don't like I said I for this episode I didn't end up reading the story before we recorded, um, so I don't know what the tone is of the story itself. Again, being written just a hundred years after, it's probably a little more pro empire than anything else i mean how can dr john watson be anti the queen right i mean honestly i think that any john watson who is at least at the start opposed to the monarchy doesn't feel like a real john watson to me yeah i mean famously he was in afghanistan fighting for the queen's wars (laughs) not ideal oh actually i have one more thing on this um um, so since you didn't read the story, um, it's my job to tell you all the mafia stuff is not in the story at all. <laughs> uh, it is a a one-off suggestion that Lestrade makes that maybe that's what it's all about. And Holmes is like, ah, yes, I'm sure that's what it is. Winky face. And then it's not. Like, the guy who gets stabbed is just some guy who is working with um, Beppo to find the statue. So John Kane just really dug into the Godfather uh, lore. Yeah. Pretty much. Good, good, good. It added flavor, I guess, by adding a lot of Italian stuff. (laughs) That Italian flavor. Well, speaking of that Italian flavor, let's talk about the ending where um, uh, Lestrade... This is like a weird moment with Holmes. And if I remember correctly, this is in the story also, correct? More or less word for word. Well, Mr. Holmes, I've seen you handle a good many cases in my time. But I don't know that I ever knew a more workmanlike one than this. We're not jealous of you, you know, at Scotland Yard. Oh, sir, we're proud of you. And if you come down tomorrow, there's not a man from the oldest inspector to the youngest constable who wouldn't be glad to shake you by the hand. Thank you. Thank you. Um, one thing I think why this is here, um, 
I found a note here that although he appears in later published works, this is one of Lestrade, uh, well, this is Lestrade's last appearances within the official canon. Near the midpoint of the 60s, he combines Holmes' works by Doyle. After this, he is only mentioned by Holmes or Watson in The Disappearance of Lady Frances Carfax and The Adventure of the Three Garadebs as a working member of the Yard. Um, this is pretty much kind of Lestrade's goodbye. You and I just watched, me for the first time, The Fast 7, in which Paul Walker has a, a, some fashion of a goodbye. I think this is a similar moment of Lestrade, like, He's leaving now. I, I believe we're going to see more of Lestrade in the show because they're out of order. But in the stories, this was kind of the fond farewell from this mm, character. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it would, I guess, form a reasonable arc of uh, Lestrade having arrogance to Lestrade respecting Sherlock Holmes. That's a, that is a perfectly sensible narrative arc in these stories. The long-suffering Lestrade finally admitting he's been licked. <laughs> yes. Uh, just so. Uh, and in the story, there's a bit where Holmes reveals the pearl that was kept in the bust, uh, and, yeah. uh, Watson and Lestrade clap, and... Yeah, there is an applause break for Sherlock Holmes in this episode. Uh, there's a bit I actually really like in that, where Watson says, it was at such moments... So Holmes blushes, and it says, it was at such moments that he ceased to be a processing machine and betrayed his love for admiration and applause. Which I think is an interesting compl- complication. Which I think is an interesting complication of Sherlock Holmes's character that he's not just a processing mm-hmm. machine, but he doesn't always show his need for affirmation. And I mean, this goes all the way back to, I, honestly, all the way back. I think for us to a scandal in Bohemia, where you started mentioning that there are, you know, there's like nine different ways Holmes could have done this that are much easier. Like clearly, he's like kind of just. He's like uh, looking for the attention. Like he's going out of his way to make it a show. And I think that that definitely, especially, I mean, that canonically now in the stories is expressed here that uh, he does in fact do a lot of this for the attention. Yeah. And however, because the episode doesn't Mm -hmm. do a great job of like foreshadowing that or like making that a plot point that's going to be a thing. uh, There's not like a, Holmes doesn't express, like, a desire for more respect at any point, so this kind of just comes out of left field. And he has a whole, like, big, like, moment about it. I, for me, I think it's more that, based on especially the show, how Holmes and Lestrade are generally, and not antagonistic, but very much clearly vying for the same spotlight, maybe. Like, inevitably, every, I think in the last three times we've seen Lestrade, Mm -hmm. Holmes has done something or said something where he's like um, the one that comes to mind other than this is the Norwood builder where uh, he's like, yes, well I'll have some questions after I go here. And it's like, no, the murder happened here. That's what you mean. I guess. Oh yes, of course. Undoubtedly. That's what I meant. Like, no, he didn't, but yeah. Okay. Whatever. Or in this one, well, straight, you follow your leads and I'll follow mine and we'll see who comes out on top and not like, like a dick. It's more of like, yeah, you, you, you follow your leads. I'll follow mine and we'll see what we pull up knowing that his lead is correct. And I think that this was suddenly like that, um, rival being like, by the way, we think you're great. Like this isn't, it's not like we're, we hate you. Like the rivalry isn't one of like, Oh, I hate him so much. I have to beat him. We, generally are like very impressed by you and like your methods and what, what you accomplished. I think that's what the emotional moment here was more about with Holmes. Cause he does break a little bit. He's like, thank you. 
And then there's a full second where Jeremy Brett's entire face just softens, like for the emotional beat, and then more quiet. Thank you, and like that. And I think that that's more what they're going for here than maybe adulation or respect. I'm going to stop talking now. No, I think that's all. That's all very fair, and it kind of ties into uh, again the Napoleon stuff of um, the the great rival, the mm-hmm. the person worthy of respect, even though the, you're working at cross purposes or whatnot. Um, there's this thematic thread through the whole thing that I actually really enjoy. And also, I mean, um, Watson facing off against his greatest nemesis, <laughs> sleep deprivation and hunger. <laughs> the great Watson adversaries of the stories. They, uh, they've convened to like uh, do a plan, but the plan will take effect for a few hours. So Holmes is like, eh, let's trade. Stay on the couch for a bit. And we, uh, we cut to later, they've kind of Watson and Lestrade are blearily getting up and uh, we have some lines here, you know, generous with the ports, uh, frugal with the information. That's such a great bit. And it's one where I have to wonder, like, with TV shows and jokes and like bits like that, the question inevitably always comes up, like, how much of this was ad-libbed or whatever? I just, that seems like such an ad-libbed line. Um, and, and I'm sure it was probably part of the script. But I just, that that back and forth, one of them, either Jeremy Brett threw in the port joke, and then the guy who plays Lestrade uh, just was right there with a comeback, or vice versa, or the, the port line was put in there, and the guy with Lestrade ad-libbed some kind of snap back. But If it was improvised, uh, good on uh, Colin Jevons, who plays Intentional Lestrade, for like having that funny moment. Um, and even if it was... Mm-hmm. How dare you quietly look that up while I was talking to make it seem like you knew his name the whole time and I didn't. You can put on the audio of me like clicking on my keyboard if you if you want. Um, and even if it was on the script, like good job of making that funny. Like this actor does a very good job of uh, Lestrade having a decent balance of perhaps unearned confidence, but also like not being an asshole. Uh, I I like him a lot. I think he's a he's a very good Lestrade, and I don't want to like let that go by the wayside. Even though the character is sometimes seen as being a bit um, foolish. Yeah, I think that it is more the adaptations that make Lestrade like foolish or na- like nasty isn't the word I want, but like mean? whiny, petulant, mean mm. about the whole thing. Like generally from the stories, uh, and again, I could be wrong. My take was always more of like this kind of Lestrade of like, um, you are successful at what you do. Like you have, you've cracked some wild cases and proven us wrong. I don't have to be happy about it, but like, I'm going to continue to do my job the best way I can to solve these crimes. And you're going to show up and say something weird. And I'm obviously, I can't just be like, well, yeah, obviously let's go like, I don't know, start a fire in a house to find the secret room where that guy's hidden. <laughs> I have to go be a policeman. <laughs> But you can do whatever. Like I, I think that it's much more. He's almost wishes he could do these weird, unorthodox methods. Like, yeah, well, of course, because he doesn't have to follow the same things that we are supposed to follow when investigating. Like, yeah, I can't start a fire in a house to find a secret room. That's kind of bullshit. But he's like impressed. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think it's more as the adaptations go along and as yeah. Holmes gets more aggressive, maybe, or like we've seen in the BBC Sherlock, where he's much more. Just kind of like, hey, fuck you, everybody. That's not me. I'm smart. You're dumb. Lestrade ends up becoming 
more like that just because he's a human being who's going to like not put up with that bullshit, but we're supposed to like and agree with Sherlock Holmes. So the Lestrade characterization becomes more petty and mean. But I think it's a strength of the Granada series is that they kind of allow mm-hmm. for complexity, they allow for subtlety, and they don't always like turn every character up to like mm-hmm. three traits, and the traits are all at 11 all the times. Just the guy who runs the um, art house. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, uh, let's see if we have any monographs here. We've kind of quickly rushed through this episode. There's not really much to talk about here. Um, but did you have any monographs for this week? Oh, yeah. There's a fun bit. I guess while we're on the straight, um, he's been told to wait at Sherlock's place. Or he said he he's there at baker street to meet sherlock but uh they're late so he's just sort of sitting there looking bored uh doing mm-hmm. some little you know physical comedy good job and you and i are both flabbergasted that he wasn't like looking at all sherlock's shit like reading his books or whatever um and then he did yeah. he like noticed some notes on the table next to him and kind of uh cheekily opens it up to have a look and holmes and watson get back see him doing this and like holmes uh quiet Watson they kind of like uh observe him for a moment or two uh and kind of giggle at like the Alice mm-hmm. trade having a moment of human weakness but not in a mean-spirited way right it's more like they caught him peeking into the files and it's not like what a loser it's more of just like huh like this is i don't know it's it's hard to explain but you're right it's, there's no like ill will or anything there like it's very much like if you like where you had a guest over and you like, I don't know, caught them like, I almost said rifling through your mail, but that's worse. Uh, if you got them like, I don't know, rifling through your bookshelf or something, like looking at your books or whatever, something like, or they just picked up one of your books and was like discreetly trying to like read it. Like they don't want you to know that they like this book or whatever. Or this isn't quite a good parallel, but like uh, seeing someone like slip a cookie out of a cookie, cookie jar. Yeah, that's probably better. A better example, like something like that of, um, you're catching them doing a slightly naughty thing, and it's not like you're like, what a loser. It's more just like, this will be fun. And then they back up and bustle into the room in the most obviously fake way possible. That's so funny with Jeremy Brett's like, Like, he just makes this noise that nobody ever makes, unless they're like faking not knowing you're there. It's very funny to me. Um, but there's that bit where they're both just like, cause you have written down here, weird boyfriends at the door moment. There is this moment where Holmes is like framed in the door, the crack of the door and motions for Watson to come over and Watson kind of pokes his head in. And then they both just have these like very kind of mischievous mm-hmm. grins, like look at each other, these mischievous grins. It's a very good, uh, I really only have one monograph. Um, and it's more about like one reason I particularly, even if the story itself is fine and the episode itself is fine. Um, I always think fondly of the Six Napoleons because uh, where I'm from, there used to be a pizza hut where once a month a like close-up magician would come and do tricks next to the table and stuff. And he had one called the Six Napoleons. And it was um, – he basically like, went through the story of the Six Napoleons during the trick, uh, leaving out a lot of the mafia stuff and the stabbings. Um, you know, for kids. 
Yeah, of course. But the box that he like put the cards in, because he had six cards with a bust of Napoleon on them, um, and the backs were all blank or whatever. The box that he put them in was this black lacquered, like the front door of Baker Street. Like the opening of the box was a front door that had 221B on it. And it looked so cool. And then by the end, he was like, oh, well, Watson, of course, the pearl was in this one. And he like opens the door to the box. There's a bu- the card in there with the bust on it. When he tips the card out, the pearl is on the back of the card. It was just a really cool trick that I always really enjoyed. Um and so regardless of whether I mm. – how I feel about this episode in general, I always think about the Six Napoleons as a an entity, I guess, very fondly just because of that, that trick I liked as a kid. It is um, very on brand for you that you have like fond childhood memories that involve both Sherlock Holmes and also close-up magic. That is very, very Mike Knoll thing. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. Well, Mark Lehman, if you're listening, shout out for – that trick, uh, I enjoyed it very much. And that's why I always asked you to do it every time I could. Uh, all right, Jackson, do you have anything else that you want to touch on before we get on to Must Clash? Uh, I don't think so. Um, yeah, I covered all that, all that I really want to get into. Apart from, I guess, like, there's some fun deliveries like a lamp and morgue. <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to put the clips in because they're not nearly going to be nearly as funny as that. Um <laughs> so those were perfect impressions this seemed probably get cut but uh, the, i had a roommate who was incredibly funny and she would tell jokes from other things that i hadn't seen yet and and like knock us dead with how good they were and then i would see them later and her delivery was noticeably better than these like comedians who were performing in front of like like a, a packed theater uh yeah well shout out to that person as well too bad you don't know magic or you might have gotten top billing <laughs> Uh, so we're here for Must Clash now. Famously, uh, Inspector Bradstreet uh, is our champion of season three um, from The Man with a Twisted Lip, his just enormous mustache. So uh, we have Inspector Bradstreet from last week with his just enormous, it is such a wild mustache with a perfectly straight line right at his upper lip, like where the, the lip ends. It is very fake. <laughs> Oh, wow, it's so much. If you have seen any of Invincible, imagine uh, Omni-Man's mustache, but like in real life, but not that real life. But also, like, imagine it about three times the size. <laughs> that mustache it does have superpowers. He doesn't know how it's to like use them It's like if Poirot's mustache ate the mustache from Invincible. <laughs> I'm going to go out and I'm going to just say, without any considering anybody else... That Morse Hudson, the owner of the gallery that we've been talking about, definitely for this episode, is our candidate. If um, Bradstreet has like a, you know, Omni-Man mustache, this guy is like, if, imagine if the platonic ideal of a British uh, facial hair was a Digimon that had like several Digi-evolutions, this would be the final form of it. For everyone who didn't understand a single word of that, imagine <laughs> a man who escaped Munchkinland. <laughs> It is fully um, the, the little like curly cue uh-huh. brackets that you use only very occasionally uh, on your keyboard, uh, but in hair form. And then it does sort of go into, it sort of very wispy, wispily connects to his sideburns. Like it mm-hmm. somehow has that curly cue at the end while also still connecting to his sideburns. And then just the very small pointed goatee beard. It's with his glasses. Like we talked about with um, 
the museum curator in France during the final problem, our champion of season two, how there's something about his whole look. He's this very jovial kind of rotund man in a suit with a, like a little bowler hat. Like everything about him accentuates the facial hair. This guy is the same, the very thin wire glasses round. He's got a slightly bigger nose, this like ascot tie he's wearing, like everything about him is just, it's so good. It makes everything better. Uh, one second, sorry. Uh, I'm realizing now that I feel like I've, um, yeah, um, but also I think I've seen this guy before somewhere, and I'm trying to oh. see if I can like play some really fast. Um, Gerald Campion. Oh fuck, I do know him from. Uh, he's from Trinity Trinity Bang Bang. Just not realizing that. I- I'm pretty sure he's playing the same character, honestly. Probably. I mean, those movies are only what 50, 60 years apart, and he's. At least 50 here. Uh, yeah. 1968 versus 1985. So yeah, 20 years. What I'm trying to say is how dare you try to have any whimsy, inject any whimsy into this Sherlock Holmes podcast of imagining <laughs> that this could be the man from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> how dare you inject any whimsy into this bit where we decide who has the best facial hair. <laughs> uh, but yes, I think it is very clear that Morse Hudson is the... Uh, clear must-class champion for right now, and yeah. he will go on to uh, face the finalist in next week's episode, which I believe is the last one of the season? Yes. Uh, there is some, I'll say, for the eagle-eared, eagle-eyed irregulars out there who maybe have watched these a lot before, there is some debate about which, if this was actually the finale or if the next episode is. Based off of where we find found them on YouTube, this was listed as the penultimate episode, which is why we're doing them in that order. Um, so next time we will be finishing out season three as as Jackson and I take a lovely bike ride to the Priory School. Thanks for uh, listening to Studying Granada. We hope you had a good time. If you want to hear that episode, you can follow us at in Granada on Twitter uh, at in underscore Granada at in underscore Granada. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and most everywhere, I believe. I think I got us on all the socials. Um, but until then, we're rare to meet thy go.